So for those of you who are visiting with us uh, this morning, it uh, might be good to let you know we're in the middle of this series that we're calling Understanding the Times, which is uh, addressing the, a lot of the things that are going on in our culture today. Normally, we spend most of our time just walking through texts of Scripture. We finished this summer, what, a two-year uh, journey through the Gospel of John, and, and that's our MO. But the elders decided in light of all that's happening in our midst right now that we should address some of these things because they have significant impact on the world that we live in as we try to bring the kingdom of God into this world and as, we, uh, as it invades the church. We need to be aware of these things. So we're talking about current events and social issues and that kind of thing. And we need to understand the times we live in. Today we're going to talk about social justice. Social justice, if you are not familiar with that term, the term itself seems pretty harmless. Social justice, who doesn't want justice in society? Everybody wants justice in society, at least we should. But that's not what the term is describing. It's describing a, a worldview, an ideology, an agenda that really leads to things that are not just. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, by the way, again, just to extend this to visitors, uh, you may hear some things today that you don't particularly agree with. That's okay. We're not afraid of disagreement around here. And there's a Q&A time after the service, and you're welcome to to fire back and to throw things, we'll, we'll engage with that. We're, we want dialogue, we want discussion. If you are a regular here, you don't get to disagree. <laughs> Just kidding, you guys, are, you guys are asleep. We need to open Kaleo Coffee stat, because you guys are asleep. So no, we're, we're not afraid of disagreement around here, but we want to have loving, gracious conversation and dialogue and make sure that we're all heading in the same direction, big picture. So before we talk about social justice, we need to get clear on biblical justice. That has to be our starting framework. What does the Bible say about justice? We're going to walk through several scriptures here where I hope to draw out a couple of things about what the Bible teaches regarding justice. And there are two points in particular that I, I want us to see. In the scripture, God's justice is impartial. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't choose classes of people or ethnicities, any groups, any social constructs that we can create. He does not take them and say, I favor this one over that one in terms of justice. He's very impartial. We'll see that over and over again as we look at different texts. Secondly, God's justice very much centers on individual responsibility. During communion, I, I discussed the idea of standing before the judge at judgment. You're not going to be there as part of a group. God is not going to put you in a certain class and say, okay, I'm going to take that class of people and judge you now. That's not how it works. You and I will stand before him as individuals on our own merit, so to speak. And we'll see that as, as we go. So we use, we, we uh, looked at this passage briefly several weeks ago when we talked about cultural Marxism. This is part of the old covenant law given by God to Israel, but I wanted to show you that God's standard in that law was without partiality. He says, you shall not follow the masses in doing evil, so don't follow along with the crowd, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. So it doesn't matter how many people are saying, this is right, this is the way we should go, this is the decision that you leaders should make. It doesn't matter how big that crowd is, God says, don't follow the masses so that it perverts justice. It doesn't matter if nobody is holding fast to what is just, God will, and that is the basis. So don't listen and don't follow to the crowds when they are saying, we're going to bend the rules of God's justice for this group. And then it's the last part of this verse that is the most difficult at times. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. And that tugs on us. If you were a judge, 
And the, the defendant was particularly down on his luck, as we call it. He was poor. He came from a rough, difficult background. There, there is the temptation to be favorable in your verdict to that person because of their poverty. In the old covenant, God said, don't do that. Now, there's a place for mercy. There's a place for taking care of the poor. But when it comes to justice, it doesn't matter. The circumstances of the defendant does not matter. You render the verdict based on what is right. Now, that's old covenant. What about the new covenant? Well, remember we looked at another passage where the Messiah was prophesied about. That's in Isaiah chapter 11. And this is what it says about the Messiah. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees nor make a decision by what he hears. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide fairness for the afflicted of the earth. So when it says he uh, won't judge by what he sees or hears, you think, well, Jesus knows everything. He sees everything right. That's, that's not the point. He's saying, put yourself in the position of judge. We are so easily persuaded by the, what we see. You see a video online and you make a quick judgment. And then later on you realize, oh wait, that video did not tell the whole story. Or you hear something from somebody and you make a quick judgment. And then later on you hear the rest of the story and you realize, oh, that first message I got, that wasn't the whole story. That's what it's saying. When the Messiah comes, he's not gonna be drawn by just what he sees quickly and what somebody says. No, he is going to judge and make decisions based on righteousness and fairness, even when it comes to the poor or the afflicted. That's important. Now again, Jesus shows mercy and grace and kindness to the poor and afflicted, and he calls his people to do the same. But that's not in the realm of the courtroom and justice. That's mercy. It's another realm. So he's impartial. Justice is impartial. God is impartial at judgment. It's also very individual. Ezekiel 18, this is predicting a time, which we now know is the new covenant, where man will be judged individually. So God says this, the word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel, and here's what God said to Ezekiel. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on age, edge? Think about that. This is God saying to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what do you mean by this? You're quoting this to me, this proverb. And what the proverb means is, the children are suffering the consequences of their father's actions. God says, why, Ezekiel, are you quoting that to me? You are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the, of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, you see over and over again that God does hold future generations accountable for the sins of the fathers. He declares it on multiple occasions, I will do this, third and fourth generation. But here God is saying the time is coming, and we now understand we're in that time, the new covenant, where that's not going to be the case. You will stand before God on your own merit, not because of something your fathers did. He goes on and explains this a little further, and then in, chapter, in verse 20, he comes to this conclusion, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. As many of you know, uh, two, not quite two years ago, my father passed away, if someone shows up to me today and says, hey, your dad mistreated me, he stole from me when I was younger, and, and now I'm going to take it out of, out of you, he has no legal basis before God or the land to, to hold me accountable for something my father did, or my grandfather, or my great-grandfather, or tracing my family tree back to the mid-1800s. I am not to be held accountable for something my ancestors did. I might have slave owners in my ancestry. I don't know. If I do, I'm sorry they did that. They shouldn't have done that. 
but I'm not accountable to God or to man for what my ancestors did. Individual responsibility is God's justice. New Testament says, this is Jesus talking, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Not every class, not every group, but every man, and that includes women, women, you're not off the hook, you're going to stand before God as well and give an account, and he's going to repay you for your deeds. Side note, you see why the gospel is such good news? Because this statement says you are going to be repaid for your deeds, and all those bad deeds deserve an eternally wrathful repayment. That's what Jesus took on the cross. So if you're a Christian, you are not going to suffer the penalty for your bad deeds. Jesus did that, but you will be rewarded for your good deeds. Amazing grace of God, piling grace upon grace. You deserve eternal destruction. He not only is going to save you from that, but he's also going to say, and you did these good things, I'm going to reward you for that. You're not going to be rewarded for anybody else's good works, just yours. This is Jesus saying this, and notice it's in capital letters here. That's the New American Standards way of saying this is something that he's borrowing from other scripture. He's quoting other scripture, and some of I already quoted for you, and there's plenty others that we could quote where Jesus is referring back to. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Thankfully, he's not talking about believers here. He's talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers, he says, are storing up wrath. There is coming a day of wrath and righteous judgment. And unbelievers are just piling up piling up in big barns that will be unleashed on judgment day as they suffer the consequences of their sin. And again, quotes, who will God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. A little, little bit later, he says, for there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So the Jews were the ones under the law, and they will be judged by that old covenant law. Gentiles, who didn't have that law, still are liable to God's standard and will be judged according to God's standard. Nobody is off the hook when it comes to judgment. Every man will be judged for their sin against a holy God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Are you seeing the consistency and the repetition of this statement? It's all over the place in the New Testament. You are going to stand at judgment. Everybody is, and God is going to give us what we do, what we are due because of our deeds. Colossians 3.25 says it again, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, not which anybody else has done, but which he has done, and that without partiality. Now, you guys are good New Testament scholars here. Colossians 3, does anybody know the context of this statement? Do you know who Paul is talking to with that statement? You're not as good as New Testament scholars as I thought. Paul, this is, this is very interesting in light of our current day. This statement is spoken to slaves. Paul says to slaves, obey your masters as if you are obeying Christ because you are obeying Christ ultimately. And in that context, he says, the one who does wrong against his master not Jesus, but his earthly master, the consequences of the wrong which he has done, he will suffer, and that without partiality. God is not on judgment day going to say, look, you are oppressed, you are enslaved, and I'm not going to count your sin against you because of your awful circumstances. 
That's not how God works. When we're talking about justice, it's individual and it's without partiality. Now, I need to caveat this. Elsewhere, Paul says, if you are a slave and you can be freed from slavery, do that. It's better. But if you're a slave, he says, be a good one. Because you are ultimately saving, serving Jesus. And the next verse, he says, masters, don't treat your slaves poorly. Last one, Revelation 22. Again, this is Jesus talking about his return. Behold, I am coming quickly. And he defines quickly differently than I do. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. When Jesus comes back and sets up his tribunal, every man and woman stands on their own before him. And I just picked a few of the verses. I could have picked a whole lot more. It's all over the scripture. If we're going to talk about justice from the scripture, it's God's standard He's the one that determines what's just. He is not a partial judge. And it's every man or woman for him or herself at judgment. Hopefully that's that's clear to you. So the question then is, what is social justice? Let me describe it this way. Friday night, uh, my family and I went down town, Colorado Springs, had a lovely meal in this uh, restaurant, and uh, as we were sitting there enjoying our pizza, uh, I was looking around the restaurant and realized, look at all the diversity in this little place. Sitting right over here to my right was a, a black man and what I believe was a Hispanic woman, and they had the cutest little kid in the world. He's about two years old, maybe, curly hair, and, and they were interacting, and he finally turned around toward me, and I put my hand up to give him a high five, and then I realized, wait, social distancing, I'm not supposed to touch him. And his dad goes, high five? I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do this. And we high five several times, and then he kept turning around to me, high five, and we just had this great little, little interaction. It was, it was wonderful, and as they left, they said, have a good evening, and it was just nice. And as I was looking around the rest of the people as they were coming out of the restaurant, I just began to observe. There's, a, there's an Asian person with a, what again appears to be a Hispanic person and, and the, all these mixtures. There are very few white couples or white families in this place. It was just, it was just great. Then we walked uh, through the streets of downtown Colorado Springs because uh, I had been told by my daughter that this was, there was going to be all this um, art on display and live music. And we walked around looking for art and live music and kept walking around looking for art and live music and didn't find much art. There was a flower, I shouldn't mock. There was a beautiful flower, flower plot, flower pot, I'll just leave it there. Anyway, we finally found the live music. There was a strip, is it Tejon? Where were we? On uh, Tejon, they blocked it off and out in front of Jack Quinn, they'd put uh, all these tables out there and so people were gathered around and there finally was the live music, this little five-piece jazz band playing all the old centers. Oh, it was, it was a great. We found it. It was great. And again, so we, we, we had already eaten, so we didn't sit down, but we leaned up against the railing outside of Chipotle and as I'm listening to the music, I'm also watching as all these people walked by us. And again, there was hardly any white families and white couples. There was all mixture of colors and skin colors and races walking by. And I looked out at the people sitting in their, in their uh, seats and I, and I noticed that we were talking about this one couple walked up and this guy, I, he looked like a famous actor. He, he looked like a guy who had played the role of, of uh, I don't know, maybe some, some Middle Eastern hitman or something and he's, he's just eating his food and you just know he's, he's got his, his men taking out the president or something. He's just, I don't know, I had that vibe and he's sitting there with his white wife and it was just, you know, I don't know if you do this, but I like to make up stories about people as I'm watching them eat. And you know what didn't happen? Nobody even thought twice about all these mixed families and couples. Nobody went, that's weird. Nobody stared at him. As, I mean, I was staring at him, but I had a different purpose. Nobody was like, oh, I can't believe, it, it just wasn't happening. It was the most normal thing in the world. It was remarkable because it was so unremarkable. 
Now contrast that with what had happened the night before in Rochester, New York. Rochester, New York, there's a restaurant, outdoor seating, lots of people of mixed variety there enjoying their evening, and this mob of people show up with bullhorns and signs, and they are screaming, saying, it's not okay for you to enjoy peace when there's so much injustice. And they walked in, they started turning over tables and running people out of there. And people left, got up from their seats and, and just left their food on the tables and, and ran for fear of harm. And they're holding up signs, no justice, no peace. What do they mean by that? They are saying there is some injustice out there, and because there is some injustice out there, we are going to disturb your peace. Now, what did these people in this restaurant have to do with whatever they thought was unjust? Absolutely nothing. But they decided they are the law now, and these people who are innocent of any wrongdoing are going to suffer the consequences of their wrath. And this is happening all over our nation. And they have yet to furnish evidence of this injustice they are so zealous about. And if they have evidence, destroying a restaurant in Rochester, New York, isn't going to bring about justice. Is it just for you to be sitting there enjoying a meal and somebody else coming yelling and screaming and turning over your table and say, get out of here because we don't like what happened in another state or another part of town? No, that's not just. That's not their place. It's not their right to determine those things. But they do this in the name of social justice. Here's how I would describe social justice. It's a term that sounds virtuous, but it's really a Trojan horse for injustice, racial tension, and power grabs. It's not so much a definition, but a description. If the people who are clamoring for social justice would stop, there would be far less racial tension and animosity and violence in our nation. They're intentionally trying to create violence and tension, because what they really want is revolution. They put, they're putting that on their signs now. They're putting their social media now. They're saying it out loud. We want revolution. We want to destroy America, destroy Western civilization. And remember, we talked about this several weeks ago, and at the heart of Western civilization is Christianity. So they want to undo Christianity so they can turn over Western civilization. And they use these other terms as well that we've talked about, Marxism, critical theory, critical race theory, and intersectionality. So all the violence and stuff that's happening right now is those who finally feel justified and feel like they have the impetus to go and, and tear down cities. But social justice has been, uh, been taught and inculcated in our schools for generations now. And the milder versions, the less violent ver versions, have led to where we are right now. We need to get clear on what we're talking about here. Social justice has been defined as the elimination of all forms of social oppression. Remember, we talked about this in the Marxism sermon. You have to have the oppressor and the oppressed to justify social justice, to justify Marxism and intersectionality and all that. You have to create a category of those, a class of people who are the oppressor and then the oppressed so that you can instigate the oppressed to revolt against the oppressors and destroy capitalism, destroy Christianity so that we can achieve utopia, so that the government can control the means of production so that we can all live happily ever after, amen. That's the lie. So, here's the oppressed and the oppressors. The middle circle, that's the oppressor. White, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied males. 
And they have a few other additions on there, but this is the main part of it. That's a lot of us in this room. We are the oppressors. Many of you didn't know you were oppressors until I started talking about it, but you're oppressors. So if they're the oppressors, then everybody else is the oppressed. So if you are not white, if you have darker colored skin, you are oppressed simply because you have darker skin. And those of us in the middle, we are called racist simply because we are not darker skinned. If you are heterosexual, you are an oppressor. It's the perverse alphabet that is the oppressed. And if you in any way say something against the perverse alphabet, then you are homophobic or transphobic. Phobia, by the way, goes back to the Frankfurt School that we talked about in the early to mid 20th century. You're afraid of homosexuals if you think it's wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm not afraid. I just think it's wrong. If you are a man, then you necessarily are oppressive of women and you're a misogynist. Now, this gets a little more interesting as we go. Uh, that is, anyone who is, has a disability is also, so you could put able-bodied, oh, I did put able-bodied. Uh, if you have a disability, you are in the oppressed category and the oppressor is exclusive, ex an exclusionist. Foreigners, which is a big deal politically right now, of course, with immigration and all of that. Uh, you are xenophobic. You're afraid of foreigners. That's why you are against all this. And then this one I find very interesting. It's on the wheel. If you look up the wheel of oppression, you'll see this on, on most of them. Uh, there is prejudice against the unattractive. Sorry for anybody who fits that category. I don't know who goes around deciding who's attractive or unattractive, but there really is this uh, view that there's a, a politics of appearance and the oppressors, so we could add good-looking. So some of us in this room wouldn't be full-on oppressors. Uh, and, and I'll let you decide if you belong in that circle completely or not. And the words that are thrown out constantly against the uh, oppressors are these. White supremacy, white privilege, white nationalism, white fragility. You are a white supremacist by virtue of being white if you're white. And you can't argue with that. They won't let you argue with that. It's just true. You're a white supremacist. I'm 50 years old. I have spent the majority of my time with people who are in that middle circle. And I've never in my life heard somebody claim that other races were inferior, that other skin colors were inferior. I've never heard anybody, any man in this room say, I'm superior to darker skinned people because of my skin color. I've never heard that. Maybe some of you have. But I don't think I've ever met a white supremacist, someone who actually thinks white people are better than non-white people. But that's the charge that gets thrown. And you can't argue with it. Because when you do, they say, you see, you're proving it. White privilege, this is a, a favorite word. This is, if you are, if you are, if you got a job, if you became the CEO of a company, and you're white, then by definition, a black person did not get that job, right? You, you understand that? Logic 101, if, if a white man got this job, a black man did not get it. According to social justice, that is white privilege. It doesn't matter the merits, doesn't matter the experience, it doesn't matter who's most qualified. If a white person got it, then a black person didn't get it, and that's white privilege. This was illustrated for us just this week in a very interesting way. Uh, there was a white basketball coach who was hired for his first coaching opportunity uh, for a, an NBA basketball team. And a black commentator, an analyst on ESPN, ripped that apart and cried foul, said, racism, 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 a black man with no previous coaching experience would never get a job like that. Charles Barkley, any of you who have any knowledge of sports probably know who Charles Barkley is. He was a great basketball player, and he happens to be a black man, 
And he said, well, what are you talking about? And he listed off the top of his head, just boom, 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 three black men who in recent years had been hired to coach basketball teams and they had had no previous coaching experience. So he totally debunked the charge just right off the top of his head. Well, the analyst came back the next day and said, yes, but this guy right now has a team with such great talent that no black guy would have ever been given a team with that much talent. Because white privilege is real. I don't care what facts you throw at me, it's real, he said. And then white fragility. If you haven't heard this term, you need to become familiar with this term because we're going to be accused of it more and more and more. Whether you're white or you're black, I've heard of black people being accused of experiencing white fragility. And what it basically is, is the reason I'm saying what I'm saying right now is because I'm a fragile white man. Meaning, if someone were to point out any racism and I start saying, you know, I'm not sure that's racism, they say, well, that's because you are uncomfortable with the discussion of racism. You're a fragile white man. And I say, no, I'm not really uncomfortable at all. I'm just, I'm trying to get to truth and facts. No, 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 no. So you have this unconscious bias because of histories and, and, and years and years and years of white privilege, you have this unconscious bias and you don't understand how racist you are. And if a black man joins me and says, no, I take Doug's side, they say, you too are experiencing white fragility as a black man. Because it's all ideology they're bringing to the table. Don't care about facts, don't care about logic, don't care about contrary truth. It's just the way it is. The American Psychological Association this week started speaking about systemic racism and called it a psychological problem that has to be stopped. So now we've got Freudian psychoanalysis that is a diagnosable problem and a whole political landscape, all the education systems are this way, as soon as the authorities of the land, the people with the power to put handcuffs on you and drag you to jail or worse, as soon as they get the power, they have all the justification they need to say, you're a white supremacist, you're a fragile white person, you have this illness, and we need to lock you up so that you don't experience, so you don't hurt others. If you're sitting here right now saying, oh, Doug has been sucked into conspiracy theories, I beg you, open your eyes. Some of you have known me for 21 years. You know I'm a pretty cynical, skeptical guy. It's there, it's obvious if you have your eyes open. We can't let the world tell us what's just. We can't let the world make false accusations. God decides what's unjust. Whiteness is not unjust. Maleness is not unjust. If you're a white person in this room, who made you white? God did. If you're a male, who made you male? God, that's right, amen. Straightness is not unjust. In fact, it's the only just sexual orientation, so to speak. God decides what is evil. Rioting and looting are evil. Sexual perversions are evil. False accusations for people to say you are racist simply because you're white, that's, that's wrong and that's evil. God is your judge. Social perceptions are not. We are not gonna stand before society someday and let them judge us. That's not where this ends. God knows your heart. SJW is a term for social justice warrior. It's usually used pejorative. I don't mean it that way, but I didn't know what else to call them. People who are on a mission to do everything I was talking about today, they don't know your heart. Don't go through life as though they do. Now, if you have truly been prejudiced to someone of a different color, repent, confess your sin, go ask forgiveness if you need to. This is in no way a justification for true bias and prejudice and racism. Christians of all people should know better than that. And you've heard me say, I don't know how many times over the years, I look back with horror 
at American history and Christians involved in black slavery. I don't understand. I can't figure out how they could have such cognitive dissonance that they would be okay with that. But you and I are not guilty of their sin. And you and I have a lot of sins to repent of, and there are a lot of things we are guilty of. But it is not pleasing to the Lord when we let somebody else say, you're guilty of this, even if we're not, and we say, yes, I confess that sin, I'm really sorry. That does not please the Lord. That's believing a lie, that's proclaiming a lie. The Apostle Paul experienced a great deal of false accusation in his ministry and life. And they were calling him all kinds of of names. And here's what he had to say, and this is instructive for us in the middle circle especially. Paul says, but to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Now, he doesn't mean he doesn't do any introspection. He's talking about a court. That word examine means like a prosecutorial examination. Says, I don't care. I'm not impressed. I I just don't give a second thought to your accusations against me. I don't even make self-accusations. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, Yet, I am not by this acquitted. So I can go around all day saying, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty, and God may say, yes, you're guilty. The one who examines me is the Lord. The only court, the only opinion that matters is God's. Not our peers, not our cultures. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. God knows where you and I have been prejudiced against others and what our reasons are for that. And again, where it's sinful, we should confess it, And where we need to bring reconciliation with brothers and sisters, we should do that. If we've offended somebody, we should go to them and ask their forgiveness. And if we've belittled those who are different from us, we should go to them and ask forgiveness. But that's because God knows it's true, not because somebody else comes along and says, hey, you're racist, you're misogynist, you're a homophobe, or whatever. That is not their place. And don't let public opinion Determine what you feel guilty about. Let the truth of God and the law of God and the standard of his righteousness determine whether or not you're guilty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that your spirit would fill each of us. I I know, I'm sure, We have a variety of things going on in people's heads and hearts and minds, thoughts. Lord, I can't qualify everything, but you, by your spirit, can help us to to drill down where we need to in our response to this. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't allow the enemy to bring division and controversy in this church. May we have enough love for one another to talk about these things where, where we struggle. And may we be people who are righteous and just as you define it and merciful and gracious with those who need our help. And above all, we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a seat or a stand, whatever you want to do, and we'll see if there were any questions. Alicia, do we have any? We have one? Is it a good one? Oh, we got several. Oh, that's what I was afraid of. Are you going to put them up? Oh, you're going to put them up for everybody to see. I'd prefer if you just showed them to me, then I could change it if I wanted to. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. You guys need some more coffee. While we're waiting, does anybody have a question from the floor? Ooh, no, let's just wait and see what someone else asks. I see. Yes, Jordan. You mentioned Israel, or you did mention Israel. You talked about individual 
Yeah, good question. Wasn't Israel a favored nation? Yes, uh, obviously they were, and the church is favored to God as well. But when it comes to the kind of judgment and justice that we're talking about for sin, Israel is still going to be held accountable as individuals. That's why I read the uh, Romans 2. Those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Those who sin without the law will be judged without the law. So God has the right to be gracious to whomever he decides to be gracious and to be merciful to whomever he decides to be merciful. That's what he says in that hard section in Romans chapter 9. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. But by definition, mercy is non-justice. It's not injustice. God doesn't ever do anything that is unjust. But mercy, by definition, is something you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give you mercy. Whereas justice is going to be the same for everybody on Judgment Day, whether they were under the law or not. Does that answer your question? Okay, thank you. All right, does God judge people differently based on their exposure to the gospel? Well, that's a good question. Um, yes and no. I'm going to run for office. Um, and I'm trying to anticipate what, what I think is being asked here. One of the things we often get um, imprecise when we talk about the gospel and the lost, lost men and women, people who haven't heard the gospel, uh, I, I've been asked before, are you telling me that people are going to go to hell because they didn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel? And I say no, because of the word because. No one is going to hell because they didn't have the opportunity to preach, hear the gospel. They will be sentenced to eternal damnation because of their sin. Right? So when, when you stand before him at judgment, he's not going to say, did you happen to hear the gospel? That's not the question. The question is, did you sin? And of course, for everyone, the answer is, yes, I sinned. Therefore, they will justly be condemned. The only escape from that condemnation is to hear the gospel. This is why we have to be concerned with missions. This is why we have to preach to our neighbors. We have to get the gospel out. Send me out, as we just sang, because people who don't know the gospel have no hope of forgiveness. On the other hand, the writer of Hebrews says, if you've heard the gospel and professed faith in the gospel, and then you turn away from that gospel, that is a far greater sin than anyone else has ever committed. So there is a sense in which ex experiencing the gospel, being exposed to the gospel, saying you believe the gospel and then turning away is, uh, is really abhorrent to God. He says you're trampling under your feet again the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, so I hope that answers the question. Does that raise any other questions for anybody here? Okay. Where, if any, would be the place for acting on racial stereotypes? Hmm. I'm not sure what that is asking. Anybody have a guess as to what you think is being asked here? Yeah, Troy. I see. Um, uh, I won't make you admit if that's your that was your original question or not. Um, I would I would say that to if the the perpetrator of a crime can be described in a certain way for police officers to stop people who fit that description and ask them questions, that has to be acceptable or we could never arrest anybody. That, that you weren't an eyewitness to him or her being the one that did it. I mean, our whole system is based that way. So yeah, I, I think that has to be acceptable. Um, certainly to draw the conclusion that, that because I arrested this black man, all black men are guilty of crimes, that's sin. But if I, that, that's the whole point of, you know, Neighborhood Watch, Chris and I, as we go for a walk, a Neighborhood Watch program has taught us how to 
see people, notice things so we could give a description. And so we're walking down the, the path and she'll be like, hey, could you, could you describe them? I'm like, there was a person there? And she knows everything. Don't ever commit a crime in front of my wife. She knows everything, the color of your eyes, the color of every piece of hair, where it changes color, you know, midway down, uh, what you're wearing, what, what, what shoestring colors are, everything, you're going to get busted. I'd be like, ah, man, woman, dog, I'm not sure what that was that walked by, but that kind of thing. So uh, you, we have to be able to profile potential suspects, I would say that, is, that, that has to be the case. Um, I think it comes back to intent. If your intent is to find a guilty party and you have this vague description and you're going you're to be looking for people, your intent is not to arrest people falsely but to find the, the one who's really guilty. For the rest of us who are not doing that, to just consider people in this category and make judgments about them, um, is we have to be careful of that. Is our intent to tear them down or is it just an observation uh, I've met four Italians, and all four Italians kind of do this. They do this when they, you know, like their spaghetti. All right, so I can draw a conclusion. Italians do this when they, is that not what they do? What, uh, I see, I don't know. I'm just making something up. To, to say that my intent is not to say Italians are bad people, just I've observed this in, in Italian people, or whatever. I'm, I should probably stop using examples like that. Anyway, that'd be my answer. I hope that answers somebody's question. How do we respond if confronted by an SJW? Well, don't give ground that's not to be given. Don't admit to anything you didn't do. Don't feel guilty for something you're not guilty of and push them for evidence. Here's where it gets hard. There's a whole book called White Fragility. That's where I got the term. That's why it's popular right now. And what this woman, Robin D'Angelo, is teaching and saying and that people all over the place are believing. High five. High five. All right, good. Um, what people are saying is if, if racism is brought up, and you, as a white person, say, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm racist. That's the white fragility, right? And if you insist on people being judged individually and not as a class, they label that narcissistic. Well, narcissism is a clinical term, that, and that's why I was talking about if they pair that with legal authority, they can put you in jail eventually for being narcissistic or at least put you in a hospital somewhere for being narcissistic because you refuse to be identified with the class and you, you demand to be treated as an individual. Well, I'm going to push back on that as, as long as I can and say, no, you're not, it's not okay to put me in a class. I'll put you in a class. Right? You obviously hate pastors. No, I don't. Yes, you do. How do you know? Because I feel hated right now. Right? You start, start giving it back to them and they say, no, no, that's not fair. So the whole system is stacked against the, the people who are in the middle of the uh, circle. So I, don't give ground. Now here, I would separate SJWs into two important classes. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> On the one hand, there are those who know exactly what they're doing. This is like the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus had he had no patience with the Pharisees. He blasted them. They were false teachers. They were leading the people of God astray. And he just let them have it because they knew what they were doing and they were in positions of authority. But with the average Jew, Jesus was very gracious and gentle and patient and, and was winsome toward them because they were just being led blindly by the blind guides. I would say we should have the same attitude toward SJWs. Someone who knows better, someone who's academia, someone who's in a place of authority, they need to be confronted head on and don't give an inch. For the masses who have just been swept away in this, try to point out some inconsistencies and win them. You might be able to. Very different attitude, at least from me, for those two groups. In these crazy times, what type of action can or should we take? Yeah, so I would answer that pretty much the same way. Is that it? Looking at U.S. history and its history with racial injustice, slavery, Jim Crow laws, isn't it possible that our systems in place still subtly favors thoughts? Those, is that like white people? Um, I'm assuming I can fill in the blank there. Is it possible that, that we still have some biases in our systems? Is how I'm reading that. 
Sure, it's possible. Prove it. Uh, just, just prove it. Um, that's, that, that's the whole point. Let's have a discussion and you show me. But here's the thing that I would encourage you as you're interacting with people over this to keep in mind. There are a whole lot of people that are convinced they can read other people's minds. If someone comes to you and says, I feel like you're a little racist, I respond, I feel like you're a little racist too against me. Why? What did I do? Nothing. What did I do to you or to a black person? Well, I don't know. I just feel this way. Your feelings are not a determiner of whether or not I'm racist. As soon as we concede that ground, we lose. So it's not about somebody's feelings. I just, I feel like you guys are this way. No, no, that, that doesn't count. Show me. What did I say? What did I do? What did somebody else say or do that you believe is racist? And let's talk about it. But you're not a mind reader and they're not a mind reader. And it is offensive and it's wrong to think you know other people's motives. But that's what they have to do. So are the laws of the land impl implicitly racist? Maybe show me one and let's talk about it. What is it? Can anybody give me an example of a law that says white people can do this, but black people cannot? Now, are there individuals, maybe judges, for instance, that are racist? Probably. Think about what's going on with the cops. I mean, that's, that's how this whole thing got started, right? Our current thing. There's so much assumption going on that these cops who shot black people did it from racial motivation. There is absolutely zero evidence of that. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Last year, there were 14 unarmed black men killed by white cops. Let's assume the worst case scenario for a minute, okay? Let's assume that all 14 of those white cops were racist to their core. Does that mean we have a race problem in America? Do you know how many cops there are in America? There are 750 plus cops in Colorado Springs. What are the chances that there are 14 really bad cops in America? Really high, right? And how many cops shot white people they shouldn't have? And how many cops how can I say this gently, received favors from women they pulled over and said, hey, I'll let you out of this ticket if. And how many cops are involved in extortion? I'm sure it's way more than 14. I mean, we are a fallen race. There are bad cops. But assuming the worst of last year and say all four of those white cops were evil, racist people, that is not systemic racism that justifies burning down all of America. Those four guys need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law if that were true. And what I'm saying is there's no evidence that any of them were racist. They may not have had warrant to use force. That needs to be addressed. But we have to stick to the law, not to mind reading, not to assuming people's motives. You would not want anybody doing that to you. And if you grab one of these BLM folks and pull them aside and start accusing them of things and say, I feel like you did this and this and this, they're not going to stand for it. And they shouldn't because my feelings about them are irrelevant to whether or not they committed a crime or a sin. Hope that answers your question. <laughs> Shouldn't the church be God as one voice? What does that look like? I'm not going to say mine, although that comes to mind. Um, come on, laugh. That's kind of funny. Um, uh, sure, it should. I mean, in an ideal world, but it's never going to happen. Um, the, the closer we come to truth and set aside the biases and set aside the assumptions and are willing to have dialogues, the sooner we can have more of one voice, for sure. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that dream of every church and every member of this church, for instance, 
being completely united on everything, it's just not going to happen. I mean, we have, we have 13, 14 elders. We don't agree on everything. We don't agree on every nuance of, of all of this. That's okay. We talk and we talk and we talk and we talk and we throw out ideas and we challenge one another. And then we do come out as elders and say, okay, these are the things that we as a board are going to assert together and agree to and give room for people to disagree on some, some other things. So that's one example of how we might do it. Yeah. Yeah, great point. Uh, the early church was unified on the gospel, meaning the, the core of it, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but then there were differences, right? That's why Paul kept writing and saying, you guys believe this and you guys believe this, but let's, let me show you where, he, I mean, he, he had the voice, but he had the authority of Jesus in a way that nobody does today. Yeah, great point, great point. And this is why we, ha we, we can't tolerate error on the core of the gospel, but on some of these other things, we need to just keep talking, keep discussing, and realize, okay, we're not all going to land exactly the same place. That's fine. Let's talk. Great point. Is that it? Oh. Studies show white names get more callback for job interviews with the same qualifications. Isn't this white privilege? Yeah, I've seen some of those studies, and I've seen plenty of other studies that say that's not true. It all depends on who's doing the study and all the assumptions. All these things are so complex, and anybody can fire off a study and say this. And the most recent study I saw on this from the Harvard uh, Law Review, uh, embedded in the discussion was, now, uh, this survey we did of, of uh, minority groups said that attitudes had changed in the last 25 years, and most minorities believe they're treated fairly. But what they don't understand is the unconscious bias against them. Did you follow that? So the same people that did this study and said that, high, that, that whites get called back more than ethni other ethnicities said, we also did a survey of people and the ethnicities agreed that that's wrong. That no, we don't feel that way at all. Our attitude is we are treated fairly. So where's the discrepancy in these people just asserting that whites get called back more and the ethnic, ethnic group saying, no, we feel we're treated fairly? It's because the people who do the study say, yeah, but you have these unconscious biases against you. And if you just knew those, then your attitude would be different and you would be crying out racism. Now, that's just one study, but... There are a gazillion studies out there, so I would just say be very careful not to believe everything you read and hear. Dig into the assumptive language. It's all over the place. And, and don't let that, don't let the internet be the place that you decide how things are going. Did it? All right, any questions for the floor here? Yeah, Troy. Uh, let's see if I can boil that down. Uh, the cross is both justice and mercy, right? God pours out his justice so that he can give us mercy. Is it wrong for us, based on that principle, to just show nothing but mercy? Is that... Is that is it wrong for us to show mercy without a substitute? Uh, I don't think so. We're not the ultimate judge here of, of m most people. D depending on your role in your house, in your church, in, in society, you may be the judge. Um, but you know, there's a whole lot of people, million, billions of people in the world I'm not the judge of in any sense. So um, mercy may not even come into the discussion at that point. That might be more grace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them grace. But to keep this 
put the fine point on it, justice and mercy, you have to be in a position of authority. We use those words interchangeably. Mercy and grace we use interchangeably, and we use them for basically any kind act and that kind of thing. But here in this conversation, we're using it more strictly. In that conversation, I would say you need to be in the position of where it would be right for you to bring judgment to show mercy to somebody. Yeah, so it, uh, the, again, for those who are watching, um, if, uh, if a father who's the judge in his household, uh, there's an offense and he shows mercy, is that wrong? There's no substitute, that kind of thing. No, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a matter of wisdom. Uh, if you show mercy every single time, then you may be, as a teacher, uh, failing because you're now enabling them to presume upon grace and mercy, and that will ultimately affect the relationship with, with God. Um, on the other hand, if you never show mercy, then you're, you're also lying about God, and you're showing just a tyrant, harsh, overbearing kind of guy. So that wisdom of when to show mercy, when to, when to bring justice as part of your pedagogical role as a teacher, um, even more so than, than judge, I would say. Same thing, I think, about the president. If the president just starts pardoning everybody, that is not good for society we would probably all agree that's an abuse of the power given him to pardon. Um, at the same time, he does have absolute pardon ability to, to pardon whoever he wants to, and we hope that he will use wisdom in doing that, that it won't be detrimental to the legal system or to society uh, as he chooses who to pardon. So that's a, kind of a quick answer. Other questions? Yes, Jennifer. It's in Europe and uh, South America, and it's, it's, they're, they're trying to expand everywhere. It, it, the intention is to be a global organization because they want a global uprising against the, uh, the, the hub of the wheel. Yeah, there, there are protests going on. I mean, there are protests all over Europe because of George Floyd by BLM folks. So somehow, our injustice as an American police force means you should go burn down London. Yeah. Somebody over here? Yeah. Now you, as the, depending on their age and all that, you may be the one who is the judge in the sense of meeting out punishment and retribution and deciding that. So in that case, you could still serve that. But yeah, you, uh, I don't have the right to forgive someone of their offenses against you. That's the point you're making, right? Right. Right. And that comes into reparations and all that. I don't have the right to ask forgiveness for something my ancestors did. That, that's a meaningless concept altogether. Again, I can express sorrow, and I do, but that's not the same thing as saying, please forgive me for, for what my ancestors did, and here, let me pay you for something that was not done to you. That, that's just a power grab is what that is. Mm-hmm. Generational what? Uh, so the question is, uh, state it one more time. What do you think about the argument of racial reparations being a solution to the generational poverty? What do I think about the argument of racial rep reparations being a solution to the poverty? 
that uh, black people some experience as a result of past slavery, basically? Okay. Um, uh, again, I think reparations is a, an unjust, nonsensical idea. Who's paying? To whom are we paying? How do we decide how much is being paid? There are no answers to those questions. Uh, you can't just pay black people. What if you find out that that black person has an ancestor who was an African slave owner, which there are more black slave owners throughout world history than there are white slave owners. Did you know that? So what if we find out, are those black people who are the ancestors of slave owners from generations ago, who are they going to pay? Nobody would ever say that they need to pay anything. And, and who do they pay? None of that is just. None of that has anything to do with justice. So that's, that's the first part. Reparations is just a, it, 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 it's a power grab and it's an emotional appeal, but there's no just basis for it. It can't be done. Secondly, I would say, uh, I've referenced several times in this series guys like Thomas Sowell and, uh, and Bradley Riley, I don't know if I mentioned him publicly, but some others who are black men who would say the greatest reason why there is black poverty has nothing to do with white people. It's all about the government, so some of them are white, but it's the government system, the education system, the teachers' unions, and fatherless homes. So here are black people saying, it's not because of hand-me-down issues from slavery, it's the government needs to stay out of this, the teachers' unions need to be destroyed, and dads need to be in the homes in their cities, and all this problem goes away. So I, I, I'm gonna trust their evaluation of that. Anybody else? All right, well, thanks for your time. Go get some lunch.